keep your Bibles open as we work our way through this. Tonight, we want to think about this under the title, Saved to Serve, Saved to Serve. I don't know if Mr. Kennedy, Clark Kennedy, is knocking about the meeting house somewhere here tonight. Mr. Kennedy was a, a great teacher for me at Clowney Junior High School. Why was he a great teacher? Well, because he taught and looked after the school play. And if you were involved in the school play, that meant that you got lots of free classes. You got out of lots of classes. And especially on a Tuesday afternoon, whenever it was double Maz, and if you've been following our series, you will know that I wasn't particularly a fan of Maz. So double period on a Tuesday afternoon, uh, sitting in the Maz room, slogging over an equation, a knock comes to the door. Excuse me, miss, can Mr. Kennedy have John to come and assist him? The teacher's replies, yes, you're excused, and off to help set up the school play. Saved from Maz to serve in the school play. Saved to serve. Now, we're not talking about Maz in the school play this evening. We're talking about us as Christian people, as a body of believers here in this place, as a church family, we are saved to serve. We're not saved to kick the feet up, to relax, and to consume. We're saved to serve. And this is so foreign in our world today. Service is not a word that we like to use. And so a book's going to come up on the screen. This book has been released in April of this year. It's The, the Joy of Being Selfish, okay? And uh, it was published in April by a life coach and an influencer. And so here are some of the little quotes from this book. It's here to teach you the practical side of self-love, to rid your life of drama and toxic relationships, and allow you to love yourself and others in the best way you can. And then this comment about the author. Michelle has made me feel more confident in my own boundary setting and in my workplace and relationship. I could not recommend this book enough to those who struggle saying no and put other people's happiness before their own. You see, in our world, to put someone else first is a bad thing. Selfishness has so corrupted our world that it's all about ourselves. It's all about how we live and about our needs first. Rewind back 14 months or so, and the awful rush that there was for toilet paper in the United Kingdom did not prove our selfishness. Even though Tesco's and Asda and all the other big superstores had said to us, there's enough for plenty of people, but our selfishness took over and everyone raced out to buy enough for themselves. And if we're honest tonight, selfishness pours out of every crack and every gap in our lives. By our very nature, we are selfish. From the way we drive, to the way that we park, or our attitude in the line for a flight whenever we queue up. We are a society of what? Of pointed elbows, aren't we? Constantly jostling to get past each other, to get ahead, and we live in an age of selfishness. It's a race to the top. It's a race to your goals and to your aims. And we see this all the time. This is the agenda that we are pushed, are pushed into. And then we say phrases like this. I'm too busy. I'm not concerned. That's not for me. Or what's in it for me? And if we're honest again with ourselves this evening, nothing can stand in the way of our agenda. That's how we live. It's about me, myself, and I. My agenda, nothing will stand in its way. Especially not the church. I'll come to church. I'll consume at church. I'll enjoy, hopefully, church. And then I'll leave. 
The church will be for me and will be there for me in a crisis moment. The pastoral care team will arrive whenever things get difficult. They'll say a few prayers. If I die, the church will give me a nice send off. They'll baptize me, marry me, and bury me. Or as someone else said, a hot match and dispatch service. No clue or no notion of investing in other people. That's so foreign. Why would I actually talk to these people? Why would I reach across a pew or turn to one another in this place and start to talk to someone? Why would I let them into my life? I'd have to make time for them. I'd have to get involved in their mess as well as my own. And that really doesn't fit with my agenda. Well, this is exactly what's going on in the church of Philippi. And Paul knew this. This church was struggling with selfishness. So what does he do? What's his, what's his remedy to this selfishness? Well, he says, look, I'm going to send you role models. I'm going to send you two role models. And we'll see it here in Timothy and in Epaphroditus. Before this, he's illustrated all that he's talking about, about selflessness in Jesus. And then he illustrates it further with Timothy and Epaphroditus. They need role models. And we need role models in the faith, don't we? That's part and parcel of what it means to gather in this place, young and old. That we look to each other, that we look to those ahead of us in the faith to be a role model. And so this little church of Philippi, I, I love imagining what this little church of Philippi was like. Acts 16, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, this little church plant that's moving along in this Roman colony. What were they like? Do you think they knew each other? Or do you think they rolled in and rolled out? with a little wave and a smile. Well, I imagine they knew each other because they would have to share in each other's lives. The pressure upon them was so great. They were living in this Roman colony, and if they weren't bound together, if they weren't united in their cause for Christ, then they would be so easily consumed and blown apart. So I imagine this little church is a church that knows what's happening in one another's lives. They know what each other are struggling with. They know what's happening in the little one's lives. They know what's happening in the teenager's lives. They know what's happening in the older folks' lives. The world is pressing them together. And yet I think the danger here for us and the temptation for us tonight here or in the hall or gathered online is that we can come along and that we can hide in this church. We can rule in and we can rule out without hardly anyone knowing who we are, how we are, or what we are. Is that community? Well, we talked about it last week, the sweetness of knowing each other. And tonight what I want to see is I want to see that we are served, we are, sorry, we are saved to serve in this place. And all of us can serve differently. So Paul in this context, this self-centered context, look at it, verse 20 of our passage. He's saying to, to the church here, he's saying in Rome, where he's in prison and he's in chains, he says, I have no one like Timothy, no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. So the church at Rome, the church at Rome are struggling with selfishness. There's no one like Timothy. They're all concerned about themselves. They won't even go to spread the gospel at Philippi. And verse 21, in the original translation in the Greek, the word interests is not present. And so it reads, let each of you look not to your own, to yourself. And you can fill in the blank. To your own health, to your own family, to your own education, to your own prosperity, to your own career. Instead, Paul is trying to illustrate for us 
verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 21. To live as Christ. We've been building these layers week after week. The, the passage, the logic is flowing. 121, to live as Christ. 127, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then into chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, let each of you not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is Christ Jesus. And as we've said, Paul goes on to give three examples of what this looks like. First with Jesus, and now with Timothy and Epaphrodites. These are two men who are living examples of this epistle. They're simply doing what a normal disciple does. And he sends them to this church as role models, as living illustrations of what he has described. And you know what? This is wonderful because it's not just theory any longer. All the things that Paul has said, it's no longer just words, but this is a living demonstration of it. It's like whenever someone gives you a recipe and you see all these things down on the page and you're like, this will, I don't know what this will turn out like. And then you see maybe the picture in the, in the next page of the recipe book, you see the picture of it and you think, that's wonderful. It's actually there. This is what it's like, a living example. And this is what it's like. It's played out in Timothy and Epaphrodite. So what we're going to see is this, that being an authentic disciple means that we are part of a holy priesthood. And we're going to work our way through that. And then to be an authentic disciple means that we are a people-centered people. And to be an authentic disciple means that we are gospel-driven. That's where we're heading this evening. So firstly, being an authentic disciple means we are part of a holy priesthood. Whenever I was at school at Portadown College, and I know in Lurgan College that you have the house system. It's a big competition. You're part of a house. And if you were in maybe some other schools, they had the house system as well. Well, in Portadown College, I was part of Shillington House. That was the red house. And uh, it was on our little badge. And everything was about Shillington, especially whenever it came to rugby and football. And house competitions are particularly tough because you have people of lots of different standards of sporting ability within your house. So you may have someone who's on the first 15 rugby team, and you may have someone who has never handled a rugby ball in their life. But if you were playing in our Shillington team, the expectation was that you gave everything because we weren't going to let Seal or McCallum win, especially Seal, because they had all the talented people. And this was the expectation. You come onto the pitch, and you work your hardest. And we did manage to win, thankfully, in our final year, but that's another story. So here in this, there's an expectation of Christians, of disciples, and the expectation is this, that you're part of a royal priesthood. Now, where are we getting this from in the passage? You're saying to me, John, what, what are you talking about? Well, this is the, the theology that underlies this, that, that's the undercurrent of what's going on here. And Paul's been saying about living your life worthy of the gospel, to, to live together, to be united together, to be all in the, the one mind, driving for the one purpose. And it's the, the theological bedrock. It's this idea of priesthood of all believers. Now, this isn't just some random idea that Paul has made up or some random uh, notion that he has had that everybody has to serve, that everybody's active in the church, but rather it has its roots in the Old Testament. So whenever we think about Exodus and God delivering his people out from Pharaoh in Egypt, he, he, he preserves this people for himself and he brings them to the holy mountain and he gives a message to Moses and he says this, in Exodus 19 and verses 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this rule falls on Adam, or sorry, on Aaron first, and then to all of his descendants. And the priests were a visible ambassador for Israel. Now, this then comes to its climax in Jesus. Jesus is the greater priest, not from the line of Aaron, but rather he comes in the line of Melchizedek. He is the royal priestly king. Jesus comes to serve as the ultimate high priest. And then this thread is picked up in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. These same words are repeated from Exodus. But you, talking about the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so to be part of this church means that we are part of God's plan. God's plan to possess a people of priests is fulfilled in the church. It's the new covenant people. So we are made royal priests by our union to Jesus, by our union to the ultimate prophet and priest and king. And the reformers, they insisted that God's cause in the world would be advanced through ordinary people just like ourselves, living out their callings in every area of life. This is the priesthood of all believers, so that each of us have a duty and a responsibility. God uses ordinary people as a kingdom of priests to mediate grace to this world. And so the priesthood of all believers, this this theological idea, whenever we think about how it applies in our lives, changes us. That every person is a priest. Therefore, what we do whenever we come along here is very and ultimately important. We can't just roll in and roll out. But whenever we gather to worship here, we're partaking in worship. We are active in worship. We are praying together. We are singing together. And that is significant. It's not just the person at the front, but it's all of us. And therefore, coming to church is not like going to the Grand Opera House and watching a show. That's not what we're doing here. It's not like going into Mournview Park to watch Glen Avon and sitting in the stands. It's not like going to the cinema to watch a film. When you come here as a believer, you are actively taking part in worship. So what you do when you come here matters. One commentator says this talking about the priesthood of all believers. He says, just like the warriors of Israel needed a priest on the day of battle, we gather to remind our fellow priest warriors of God's great promises. We sing familiar songs with repeated promises, and we look one another in the eye as fleshly representatives of God's invisible kingdom. Another way to say this is we are the church militant. The church triumphant or in glory, we, while we're on this earth, are the church militant. And so there's a responsibility. That's what we're trying to communicate tonight. There's a responsibility for each and every one of us as a member of this church family that we live lives, chapter 1, verse 27, worthy of the gospel, chapter 2 and verse 15, as lights in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. Paul has exhorted these people to live holy lives. And he demonstrates it through Timothy and Epaphrodites. So let's go to Timothy, our second point in Epaphrodites. Being an authentic disciple means we are people-centered. Being an authentic disciple means we are people-centered. 
We live in a beautiful world. And John Calvin writes this about creation. He says this, Would the Lord have dressed the flowers and the beauty that runs freely to meet our eyes if they were wrong to be moved by such a beauty, or if it were wrong to be moved by such a beauty? Would he have endowed them with so sweet a fragrance that flows freely into our nostrils if it were wrong to be moved by such pleasantness? Has God not distinguished colors in such a way as to make some more pleasing than others? In some, isn't it obvious that he has given us many praiseworthy things, even though they're not necessary? We live in a beautiful world, and there is nothing more beautiful than human beings. Human beings are beautiful people, and I'm not talking about our exterior, although some people are blessed with beauty on the outside. I'm talking about as a whole being, we are beautiful creations. Each person on this earth is amazingly formed, given life by God. Each person has their own fascinating story to tell. Each person has scars from life, both physical and mental, but people are wonderful. Don't know if you're like me, but I love to people watch. You sit in an airport, maybe in the future sometime, or you sit in the main street of Lurgan or around the park and you watch people going past. People are beautiful, each with their own story. They're wonderful. And as Christians, we should be interested in people. A big deep breath. Being interested in people's heart, right? We know that. We know it's hard to invest into one another's lives, but this is the call that we are others orientated. Verse 20. For I have no one like Timothy who what? Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Do you see the tenderness here? The deep love that Timothy has, his desire for people. He wants to be with the church here at Rome or or in Philippi. He loves the church. Verse 21, everyone else seeks their own interests, not the interests of Christ, but actually to to have the mark, the official mark of the church, you will love people. And therefore, Timothy is the antidote, the antidote to the selfishness of the church at Philippi, because he comes as this role model. They will see a man who doesn't seek his own interests, but the interests of Jesus Christ. They will see in Timothy the mindset of Christ, verse 5 of chapter 2. And in verse 22 of our passage, Timothy said, or Paul refers to Timothy and says, he has proven himself. He's actually lived this out. And so his love for people boils down to a love to encourage the church. Isn't that wonderful? Don't we need that? We need to be encouraged as we gather here week after week, as we go through tough weeks and difficult weeks. But Timothy has a genuine care, genuinely concerned, verse 20, for the welfare, for the physical welfare, but for the spiritual welfare of the people in this church. It's not a church that you want to be part of where you know that your brothers and sisters, the people in the pews around you, they care for you, genuinely care for you and for your welfare, for not just your physical, but your spiritual welfare. He really cares. People are right at the center. He is others oriented And Epaphrodites, he demonstrates exactly the same. Look at verse 26. He longs for this church. He's been sent out from the church as a messenger. He makes his way to Rome. He nearly dies. But he longs for them, verse 26. He's concerned about them. He wants to get back to them. 
You'll say to me this evening, John, that's great for Timothy and Epaphrodites, but I don't really like people. Well, last week we thought about what God works in. We have to work out what God puts in. We have to, we have to work that out of us. And this is part of that working out. It is difficult. It's hard to love some types of people. There are people that will inevitably rub us up the wrong way. But this is our call. Getting to know people in this place. Praying for people. Talking to people. Pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And so we are a church of people who are people-centered. Our eyes are open for new people. And our final point for this evening. Being an authentic disciple means we are gospel-driven. Being an authentic disciple means that we are gospel-driven. Timothy and Epaphrodites, we've seen they have a heart for people, but they're also driven by the gospel. You see, if we are people-centered and not gospel-driven, then we don't offer people anything. If I'm telling you this evening to just be really nice to folks, to be interested in people and in their lives and in their beauty and their story— Well, that's really just moralism. We could do that down in the cricket club or the bowling club or the badminton club. I could tell you exactly the same thing. But this is what makes it different. We are gospel-driven people. Both go hand in hand. The gospel is the motivator, the stimulus, the fuel, the energy source for us to be interested in others. See the words that are used in this passage. That Epaphrodites, what is he? He's a fellow brother. He's a worker. He's a soldier. Verse 25. Timothy. He serves. Verse 22. These are active words. Again, whenever we think about our service, what does it look like for us? Is it just a week here or there? Maybe a week at Holiday Bible Club? Maybe it's just a little season that we want to serve in the church. We want to, we want to be careful with our work-life balance. What is the expectation to be gospel-driven, to be people-centered? Verse 30, he nearly died. Epaphrodites nearly died for the work of Christ. He's willing to lay down his life, to live as Christ, to die as gain. See Paul illustrating this again. So the call, Paul says, for Timothy and Epaphrodites is to serve Jesus. And they're both different characters. Timothy is shy. He's more reluctant. He's a little bit more backward. Epaphrodites, he seems to be a stronger, more combative uh, person who enjoys a challenge. But Paul uses both men, both illustrations here, to show that they're both serving the Lord faithfully, but differently. They've been gifted differently. And so Epaphrodites, what does he do? Well, he comes with this practical gift to Paul. Paul's in prison. You would have no food. You'd have no money, no clothes, no medical supplies. And so this little church at Philippi sends Epaphrodites out to care for Paul. And so he arrives with this little parcel, and he gets a mention in this, and he gets a mention in this letter. He's just practically serving. And sometimes we can underestimate the value of practically serving. One commentator says this, We must understand that to serve in some unnoticed, unrecognized place in the body of Christ is as much the work for Christ as public ministry. It's as much worth to do something in the background. Robert Murray McShane said this, Not great talent that God uses, but great likeness to Christ. Not great talent, but great likeness to Him. And so Timothy will come and preach. Epaphrodites will come with a little parcel. 
So for us, whatever talents, whatever gifts, whatever abilities we have tonight, the call is to use them here in this place. And if you don't use your talent, well, we know what it says in the New Testament in Matthew, to to not use our talent, to bury our talents, we walk a dangerous path. Don't waste your skill, your abilities. Most of us here in this place can pray, I would imagine. Most people in this place can put out chairs, can use a brush, can operate a Henry Hoover. We can serve each other practically and spiritually. So friends, the call is to use everything that God has given to us for service. That's what Timothy's doing. That's what Epaphrodites is doing. That's what Paul wants to illustrate tonight. And so the priesthood of all believers means no one here is exempt from that. We're all in this together. And as we close, I want to close with this quote from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor founded the the China Inland Mission, which is now OMF. And he said this. This this is a wonderful quote about Christian service. He was used by the Lord, called by the Lord to go to China. He said, if I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? Friends, what a call to come tonight and to serve our Lord and Savior every day that he gives us. And so what does it look like to be a disciple in this church family at Hill Street? Well, it's a call to serve. What are we spending our lives on? What are the years that we have lived saying about us? How can we serve? How can we pray? How can we volunteer? Well, tonight as we close, let God's word press into you press into you the reality of Christ's call in your life. And so may we go tonight and frame our plans and our dreams and our hopes in light of serving him in this place. Tonight, this is a call to arms, to the church militant, that we would rise up and that we would serve our king. We have been served, saved, so that we may serve him. What is God calling you to do this evening. Let us bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we think about your word to us this evening, as we look at these illustrations through Timothy and Epaphrodites, Lord, as we look at these men who lived for you, who served you, who gave their all for you, who were role models to this church, Father, we pray in this place that we would respond to this call to arms, the church militant, and that we would serve you in this place, that we would give our all. If it's in prayer, if it's in putting out chairs, brushing a floor, whatever we do, we do in the service of you. Father, help us to be obedient. May we listen to your voice tonight. 
What are you calling us to do? How are you calling us to serve one another in this place? Jesus, may your love for us move us, motivate us, fuel us, and change us so that we don't live selfish lives, but that we live for you. Jesus, we say, take us and use us for the glory of your kingdom. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.